Welcome to Alternative Fund Insight, exploring the trends and meeting the personalities driving hedge funds and private markets. My name is Will Wainwright, and this week I am joined by Jack Ingalls, CEO of the trade group AMA, to discuss the regulatory environment and the potentially existential threat facing the hedge fund industry from US proposals. This episode is brought to you in association with the Independent Research Forum, enabling professional investors to access a wide range of high-quality independent research through a diverse group of hand-picked providers. IRF publishes a fortnightly newsletter highlighting the latest original and thought-provoking research. For more information, visit independentresearchforum.com. Before we get into the conversation, a reminder that AFI Membership is here, an essential information tool for professionals in alternatives. Visit alternativefundinsight.com to discover a new world of news, research and business intelligence tools. Now to a fascinating briefing on the regulatory outlook facing hedge funds and other asset managers with Jack Ingalls, CEO of AMA. He explains why this is the most significant period of regulatory challenge in the near decade since he took over, how Amos' focus has shifted from Brussels to DC during that time, and why he welcomes the recent UK financial rule changes in short selling and other areas. This episode was recorded on Thursday the 13th of July. Jack, thank you for joining me today. We've just passed mid-year. It's been an incredibly busy few weeks on the policy front, hasn't it? There have been lots of steps taken affecting different regulations and possible regulations that could have quite far-reaching implications for hedge funds, for asset management in general. Let's start with how the US is currently looking at securities dealers, because this seems to be quite a major story that isn't getting a lot of attention at the moment. Yes, and, you know, for, for, for a long period of time... Um, it was the it was the EU um, that was the big focus of regulatory change that was impacting uh, our members. If you remember AFMD, Mifid, Mifir, uh, and that was taking up really most of the most of our time. And and by contrast, the US um, was pretty quiet on on any new uh, regulatory um, rules that were being presented to the market. Uh, that all changed when Chairman Gensler came into the SEC, and really, as of the beginning of uh, of last year, really in the first quarter of 2022. Uh, ever since then, we've seen you know, an extraordinary number of new proposals being made to um, uh, made, made to the market and uh, made mm. to the industry, which we've had to respond to. Uh, I think there's been over 30 new rules proposed, William. Um, so as, as we sort of pick through those, and you've just um, you've named one, but it is probably the most important one, and one that I think that it's um, it, it's not um, uh, it's not an over exaggeration to say that it, its uh, impact on the industry is potentially existential, and that's the, uh, the 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 rule which is changing the definition of actually what a securities dealer is. Now, to put that into um, a little bit of context, the Exchange Act of 1934, so we're going back 90 years, um, 
was pretty clear in what a mm -hmm. securities dealer was. Uh, and so for the past almost a, almost a century, uh, the market has um, really been um, operating on the basis of, of a clear understanding, both in the statute of what had become settled practice, and indeed many years of guidance from the SEC of what a securities dealer is. And so therefore, most market participants knew by the basis of that context uh, whether they needed to register as a securities dealer or not. Now, several things have been happening. We, uh, in April 2022, the SEC proposed a new rule, which effectively redefines uh, what a securities dealer is. Uh, and when we when we look through uh, what those thresholds are that are now being set, which are vastly different from what had become settled practice, uh, it's very clear that a great number of um, investment managers, and this is not just in the hedge fund industry, but a great number of investment managers uh, would potentially be caught up by this uh, and therefore have to register as a securities dealer. Uh, and therefore enter into a huge thicket of regulation, capital requirements, uh, requ um, uh, reporting, uh, audits that um, uh, that securities dealers have to go through. Uh, so that is, is an enormous change. That, that, that seems like a huge, a huge potential burden for the industry and also quite an unjustified one. Because you know that, that that is not the role of a of a hedge fund. So how how do you go about changing that and 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 ensuring that these don't go through? So, uh, like all new proposals, there's been a um, uh, a consultation period uh, in which we're able to make comment uh, on the proposed rules, and we've been through a fairly extensive period of engagement with the SEC, including the Chairman Gensler himself exactly on this um, uh, this particular rule, as we have done on other rules that have been proposed um, during the same period. Uh, it remains to be seen what the impact of that advocacy and that lobbying uh, has had. Um, but really, all the signals that we're getting that are coming out of, um, uh, out of the SEC is that they seem very set on uh, issuing this rule pretty much as it was originally proposed. Now, when I first saw that rule, I thought, okay, this is uh, this. Th there are some unintended consequences that hadn't been clearly thought out by the SEC, and I postured that to uh, Chairman Gensler in a meeting, and his response to me was, "Jack, um, there's nothing unintended about it at all." So they are definitely wanting to capture hedge fund managers and their funds uh, in this new rule, and and really. Where the, the angle they're coming at is that really anybody who buys and sells securities on a regular basis should be defined as a dealer. But we all know really in our minds what a securities dealer is. And this is what has become settled. This is what settled practice over the past 90 years, which is effectively um, anybody, any firm that is um, uh, is is trading on their own account. Um, uh, essentially for customers as part of their regular business. Now, um, think market maker, uh, think investment bank dealing desks. Um, they fit yeah. obviously very much into that category. So we were somewhat shocked to, be, um, to, to see this all being upended and the potentially hedge funds being pulled into this. Um, what, what, other, what other rationale could they have for it, do you think? 
is is there a kind of greater level of scrutiny they can achieve by doing it's, this? Uh, I'm never quite sure to um, uh, how to answer that question. Is is what is um, what is uh, the SEC or what is Mr. Gensler actually trying to achieve? And, and many people have tried to to answer that, and um, uh, and, and not always kindly in in in, in what his ambitions are. Uh, so it, it, it's really hard to do that. I mean, obviously, a regulator is there to protect consumers, to ensure fair and orderly play in markets, efficient markets, etc. Um, but we think it's very misguided that this would actually achieve that. And let's not forget, William, that investment advisors, so hedge fund, uh, hedge fund advisory firms, they already have a whole set of investment advisor rules of which they have to apply to. So um, it's not as though they are not supplying already a huge amount of information which the regulators can see. I think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. one thing I, I did want to add, um, because uh, ap- apart from um, obviously what we're trying to do in, in direct engagement with the SEC, what we've observed, and perhaps this has this is beginning to get picked up in the media, and we've certainly been um, shining a light on this one, a very bright light on it. But at the same time, in parallel to this, the SEC is pursuing a strategy of, um, let's call it regulation by enforcement. And by that, I mean, across scattered across the United States at the moment, across various courts, district courts, appellate courts, there are about a dozen or so individual cases brought by the SEC against certain market practitioners. Uh, And the case really being made to all of those is you should have registered as a securities dealer. And Mm -hmm. now, who are those market practitioners? Uh, In the main, they are very small shops or individuals of people who've been trading, uh, yes, for their own account. Um, Where the SEC seems to be picking up on most aggressively is is anybody who's been dealing in, um, uh, in, in small convertible bond issues. Um, which um, uh, which are offered deep discounts. So convertible bonds being converted at a discount, um, and uh, and those practitioners being able to profit from it. Now I'm not uh, uh, I'm not going to make any comment about kind of the strategy that they're pursuing, but I think that what they all have in common is they're relatively small players, and therefore find it very difficult to defend themselves against the cases being brought to them by the SEC. But the reason that we've sort of homed in on these is because it's our view that the SEC will use any victory in these cases um, as uh, direct precedent for what it's trying to achieve as the bigger picture for what I've already talked about. So we felt Mm it um, extremely important to intervene uh, in these individual cases on a selective basis. And by intervention, uh, what I mean is that the U.S. court system uh, allows for uh, third parties to offer up some expertise and expert um, interpretation of the law uh, to help courts make their decision. Um, and they're known as friends of the court. So in five instances so far, AMA has submitted what are called amicus briefs to those individual court cases, really highlighting the fact that the SEC is extremely misguided uh, in insisting these particular um, players in the market um, should be defined as securities dealers and therefore 
there should be no case against them for not having registered as a security stealer. Um, so, yeah. you know, our aim is to um, to to shine a light, um, bring some independent legal um, opinion uh, to these cases, but well formed legal opinion uh, and based on uh, really our experience of what settled practice has been in what a securities dealer actually means. Now, those are all going through the, the courts at the moment, and, and we've we've got no um, immediate results to report, but we felt it absolutely crucial not to be sitting still uh, while this great, while we await this um, uh, the finalisation of the rule that was proposed uh, in April last year. And one final question on the securities dealer part, um, just to kind of prepare the industry really in the long run. If all this does go through, you know, when will it take effect? I'm guessing that hypothetically we're talking in years here. Well, I wouldn't assume it would be in years. There's there's no uh, there's no um, standard for once a rule is is published um, by the SEC uh, for the length of period they need to set for um, ultimate final compliance with it. They could choose to accelerate it. Uh, certainly not years. Uh, it could be anything up to a year, but indeed it could be a lot shorter. Uh, and therefore, wow. there will be an, a huge amount that we have to contend with, um, should this be the case. Well, that is really interesting. And let's stay in the US because we also have the private fund advisor rule. Um, this is a proposal at the moment, but it could have quite a radical impact on the relationship between manager and investor um, in some quite interesting areas. Um Multi-strats are a big topic of conversation at the moment in the industry. Um, now, this proposal could ban pass-through, which would have a big impact on their business model. So perhaps you could introduce this and let me know what AIMA makes of this area at the moment. Yeah, you've, you've alighted on, um, uh, on another one, which is of serious concern uh, to us here, William. So the private fund advisor um rules of proposals uh were um put forward by the SEC in March last year and we are waiting any day now uh the finalization the final rules to be published by the SEC we were expecting it um perhaps back in May um what are we now into July uh, it wouldn't surprise me uh, if this was um, uh, landed on our desk in the middle of of summer, and mm. really, what in what areas is it is it problematic um, to uh, to investment managers to anybody who's in private funds? So this is not just hedge funds. This is uh, private equity funds, private credit funds, real estate infrastructure funds, etc. Uh, and, and if I could pick sort of two parts out of it, you talked there about, um, uh, you know, the potential prohibition of um, uh, uh, of expense pass through funds. Uh, I mean, yes, that is highly possible. That is highly possible. The rule, as it was proposed, already prohibits fund advisors from passing through certain compliance, regulatory and other fees and expenses to fund investors. And it is possible that um, uh, it goes to the full extent of um, uh, of 
uh, of, of prohibiting all expense, um, all expenses being passed through the fund. So, given that there's been a uh, significant trend, and not just at the multi-strategy funds that you mentioned there, William, but um, increasingly across other types of strategies, uh, where some, uh, some certainly some level of of uh, expenses have been passed through to funds. Um, you know that that is quite a meaningful change from kind of what current industry practice is. So um, that um, uh, that is is somewhat concerning. I think also mm. extremely concerning to us is um, the removal of really what are the rights for an investment manager and their client, the investor, the limited partner in those private funds to negotiate an, uh, a, um, a bespoke uh, agreement on um, through their, 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 their advisory agreement that they have with them. And that could be to do with um, uh, certain levels of transparency in the portfolio, could be certain uh, related to fees. You know, you and I know, William, that um, uh, particularly uh, if, if a large investor comes in or an anchor investor comes in at the early stage of a fund, they typically would like to see and do demand some preferential fee terms. And what we're seeing with this private fund advisors rule is that um, no preferential treatment will be allowed to any investor. Um, so it has to be a level playing field, which to a certain extent, you know, might at, at first glance sort of sound, well, that's fair. Um, but nevertheless, um, what it is, is is removing the freedom uh, of contract negotiation um, between um, a hedge fund manager and their client. And, and, and I think that's a, a, a major change. But most problematic of all is that of the um, tens of thousands of uh, agreements that are already out there um, where um, terms have been agreed with an investor, that they would not be permitted to continue. So there would be no grandfathering of these terms, uh, and which would result in just an enormous number of agreements having to be reset. Uh, from where they currently sit. And you can just begin to imagine the enormous body of work that that would entail um, right across the industry at the individual manager level. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another huge area of potential burden and um, compliance headaches um, that will need to be solved. One final US area is the recently finalised Form PF proposals. Yes, so um, uh, back on, I think it was on May the 3rd this year, they adopted the final rule. Um, and it does make significant um, uh, changes to uh, to form PF. But it was pretty much largely similar. So this is the one where the rules have actually been finalised. But it's pretty similar to what they were proposing back in January last year when they first made the, um, uh, the, the new proposals. Uh, so what it does, it's, it requires um, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a time, uh, in a timely manner um, the reporting to the SEC of uh, certain events. And those events include extraordinary investment losses, um, anything that, that the manager level uh, that is significant, um, material changes to prime brokerage relationships, margin, uh, any operational, significant operational um, issues, significant redemptions, 
so um, it, it really puts the burden back on um, uh, on, on the manager uh, to, um, to 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 have to report these things. But I think probably one of the, the, the most worrying things about this and the significant change is that they've got to report these um, these changes, these events, uh, as soon as practicable but no later than 72 hours um, upon the occurrence of um, these certain events. Now, mm -hmm. 72 hours is not a huge amount of time uh, if there's an, a weekend in between and there's a bank holiday attached to that as well. Uh, so the possibility of not meeting that deadline um, is very real, uh, something that we at Aimer have certainly been pointing out um and um uh and uh, but to no avail so you know there's a lot to digest here about exactly what events you would have to report um so we're going through a fairly extensive period of, of running webinars and um uh, publishing guidance uh, exactly how you can be comfortable in complying with these new rules yeah it's so interesting how in the years after the financial crisis, so much of Amos work related to proposals coming out of Brussels and had quite a European focus, as you mentioned. And now so much is coming out of DC at the moment, which is giving you a lot to work on. Does it feel like the, 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 the biggest amount of kind of regulatory work and challenges the industry's faced since you took over at Amer? I would certainly say so, um, almost without a shadow of a doubt, but both in, in, in quantity of new rules that are coming out, particularly out of the US, um, which is you know, our, our team have been working flat out in responding to so many of these proposals. And I think the number of submission letters that we, uh, comment letters that we put in on new proposed rules last year reached um, an, an all-time high of 130. So that's one measure of... Um, just in terms of quantity of what we're dealing with. But I think of, of more importance is the severity, um, the real changes that are going um, going to be taking place here if these, these proposals go through as, uh, as, um, as originally written. Uh, and it, and, it, and it, as I said earlier on, it's no exaggeration to say that some of these are quite existential to our industry, particularly that, um, that one about securities dealer definition. And, and that's not just my term. Uh, many of our members um, have been using that same term. And at a recent AIMA board meeting, uh, that was the term that most people settled on and agreed on, um, was the real risk um, if, if these rules go forward. Uh, as proposed. So, you know, what we're going to have to do is, is as and when the final rules get published, um, we're going to have to assess what, if any, course of action we have open to us um, uh, to perhaps seek a reversal or a modification or amendment to these rules, if indeed mm -hmm. that they are um, as sufficiently bad as we think they, 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 um, they are. I mean, a couple of comments that I would make. I think we feel that um, the SEC has gone beyond its mandate in in unilaterally um, being um, you know potentially forcing in new rules like this, particularly that one on securities dealers. You know, if you think the original definition was wrong from the 1934 uh, Exchange Act, then you really should go back to Congress to seek change on that. And we've certainly been heartened that um, uh, that there has been a letter um, from a senator and a congressman to the SEC, um, pointing out that perhaps that um, they, they, they are going beyond 
uh, their remit in unilaterally trying to push through through this change. So uh, that's something that we will have to um, almost certainly look at. Uh, whether there is any way that we can uh, we can challenge uh, challenge these, and you know, I'd say here and now, William, it's it's not without precedent that um, uh, that that government regulators agencies uh, have been challenged in the courts before, uh, and yeah. um, and we think um, that's something we'd have to look at quite seriously. That's interesting, and the term existential is, you know, it's a very strong phrase to use um and you know just to dig into that a little bit is it the sheer compliance burden that all of these changes would leave the industry with and the industry after all is made up of an awful lot of small firms i know that there are a lot of big firms too but the vast majority actually have quite small headcounts and maybe wouldn't be able to comply with all of this in in an orderly fashion it's a question. Well, there's a cost element to it, um, and the SEC have already identified um, what costs uh, are associated with having to register as a securities dealer, uh, which you also therefore have to register with FINRA, uh, and some of those costs are really very, very significant. So um, uh, they may be costs that managers just really. Uh, do not want to bear because it doesn't make any economic sense for them to do so. So I think that's one thing. It becomes a decision whether to continue uh, or not continue. But I think the the, the other point, um, and I think this is a really important one, William, is that the, the there are certain um, sort of standards that, um, that the, the SEC have put forward in the securities dealer um, proposals, certain standards, thresholds of what uh, would determine to be a securities dealer or not. I think what that would have is uh, would have uh, people looking at what their strategy is, asking themselves the question: Does my strategy um, and my my trading pattern get captured by this? And if the answer to that is yes, then they might sharply change the nature of their their strategy or their trading pattern. Um, so just for example, um, the quantitative threshold in, um, in the new securities dealer rule is, uh, is based on government bonds. Um, and uh, if a certain quantity of um, uh, of, of trading in government security, U.S. government securities is undertaken over a certain period of time, uh, then you would automatically fall into this concept of being a securities dealer, this definition. Uh, if, as a result of that rule, uh, hedge funds who are very active in trading U.S. government bonds decide to sharply reduce their activity in that market because of this new rule, what is the unintended consequence and what is the impact of that happening? What do you, you you take out an enormous amount of liquidity out of the government bond market? Um, and I think that is very significant at a time when governments everywhere are reliant on the capital markets for their borrowing requirements. Um, and so I think yeah. that is a very crude one. This is not a time to be wanting to reduce liquidity in in any markets and, and definitely not in the US government bond market. Let's move to the other side of the Atlantic where there have been some changes 
this week, in fact, where there may be a potentially improved direction of travel. The UK has had its short selling review ongoing and the government responded this week and there might be a break with Europe in terms of the public disclosure of short selling um, positions, which the government has advocated for now. Um, in the instead of the individual hedge fund short positions above 0.5% being disclosed, there will be an aggregate list of um, a list of aggregate short positions in companies. Um, so this picks up on a theme that Carson Block was talking about on this podcast a few ep- episodes ago. Um, so that could be a step in the right direction for the industry. And the Chancellor also made his Mansion House speech where there were some other potential changes. So what do you and Ama make of all that? Um, well, we, we are um, extremely pleased to see these changes announced this week. There's nothing nothing better in the middle of summer to get some good news. When uh, particularly on the rest of this podcast, we've been talking about um, some rather potential bad news here, William. So... Um, mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, the UK in, in, in the post-Brexit world is now free to make its own rules, uh, and it's been um, it, it's been careful not to just sort of plough headlong down into change for change's sake. But it has listened to us. It has listened to the industry um, on some very key matters. And so, as you say, the Chancellor announced um uh, the uh, the results and and the changes from the short selling review which was an, an open consultation uh, and we've been very active in not just responding to that consultation but um but having uh, uh having advocacy conversations on multiple levels so we were delighted to see um both the the move back towards reporting of net short positions on an aggregated basis uh, it's been a real um, issue in hedge funds, um, uh, the the idea of being um, uh, being named publicly um, as an individual firm or individual fund um, for your short your short positions, uh, because that adds a lot of risk. You're being um, publicly exposed. Uh, you can get uh, you can be at risk of of short squeezes. Uh, uh, and uh, and all the rest. So that was extremely well. Just to mention, that was the most notable case of that uh, was early in 2021 with the GameStop situation where you had the, the groups on Reddit who were going after short sellers of that stock in, in concert. And although that wasn't a European stock, so it wasn't disclosed because of these rules, it is an example of when there is wider knowledge of a short position, it can pose risks to a hedge fund. I think that's right. But to be fair, in the US, um, it's aggregated short positions, although I think the identity of, of where the biggest shorts were was actually more visible through the you know, through the options market rather than actually through the um, public disclosure of, of physical short positions. But nevertheless... So this rule is going to bring the UK into line with the US, in, in essence? That, that, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And then we've also seen a reversal of um, the threshold for reporting um, so it's gone back up to the level that it was changed to during the pandemic um, when it came down to 0.1%. It's gone back up to 0.2%. And this is for disclosure to the financial regulator. Yes. Yeah. 
and it's just the financial regulator. It's not public disclosure. Um, uh, and so really, these are these are extremely welcome um, changes to uh, the rules around short selling. And then I think you know, parallel to this is an ongoing process, which will hopefully mean this gets applied to um, sovereign debt and CDSs as well. So all moving in the right direction when it comes to that. And, and, um, and we see that as good repayment for the hard work that we have been doing advocating for exactly this result um and then also this week um it's almost like um uh, london buses they you know they, they they when one comes along three come along so uh but just to mention um one other one the um uh what mifid 2 brought out and it was quite um it was quite a uh, a radical shift from uh, historically how markets had operated whereby uh, and investment managers consumed research and paid for that research in a bundled format with the execution that they were paying out to, to brokers um, who were providing that research and who were executing on their behalf. MIFID II forced the separation of the payment for research from your execution commissions and transaction fees. Uh, that that had some, uh, unfortunately, had some um, uh, unintended adverse consequences of reducing the quantity of research, perhaps reducing the quality of research, and indeed also um, uh, sort of deterring research done on smaller companies, which are probably where it's needed most. Yeah. And so as a result of a commission um, uh, by the HM Treasury, the the uh, independent research review that was also published this week uh, and really um, uh, heavily recommended that um, uh, that uh, it should be allowed that for managers to pay for the research in a bundled uh, in a bundled way with their um, with their execution. So going back to where we were before Mifid two came along. Um, now this is quite this is quite dramatic because actually uh, you, some people might think oh well, that was an EU construct but when when Britain, Britain was still in the EU it was the it was the FCA and the UK who were most pushing for this unbundling but we're very happy to see that the FCA very quickly responded after the publication of the independent research review uh, saying they would act swiftly uh, to implement changes. Uh, that have been recommended in, in in that review. So again, another thing. Um, extremely happy to see this year, um, and uh, and and this week indeed, uh, and particularly just before I go in holiday. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that that is always welcome. A quick note on timing with um, the Mifid and the short selling changes. So these should be um, introduced fairly straightforwardly, I would think. Um, of course, there there is almost certainly going to be a general election later on next year uh, and possibly an incoming Labour government. So would that have any impact on these changes? Yeah, I mean, these changes will be well in place long before that uh, that election even gets underway. Um, I think you can expect these changes to come about extremely quickly. And as I, as I said, even the FCA have said that they would act swiftly. Um, so th- then, then you're leading me, William, into the dangerous, dangerous ground of trying to uh, trying to predict what the uh, a Labour government should they get in, what their policy stance uh, would be, uh, and and I think um, that's it's way too premature um, to 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 try and guess that at the moment. Uh, 
but you know, these are technical changes. I, 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 we see certainly our engagement with the Labour Party um, is that they are not city unfriendly. They are not definitely not business unfriendly. So that 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 is not a major concern for me at the moment. Okay, good stuff, Jack. That's been a really interesting and very useful briefing on the regulatory outlook and AIMA's priorities at the moment. So I will leave you to it. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, William. Thank you to Jack. If you haven't already, please follow AFI on LinkedIn and sign up to our free newsletter, an essential read for anyone in hedge funds and private markets. That's it for now. Until next time on Alternative Fund Insight.